Welcome to the Ultra Sports Science Foundation podcast, provided as part of our educational mission. In these sessions, we chat with scientists and clinicians who are generating new knowledge related to ultra endurance sports, bringing you insight directly from those in the know. Please listen in to our conversation. Uh, this is Matthew White, uh, and this is Ultra Sports Science Foundation podcast. And I'm here today with uh, Mr. Fionn McSweeney and Lorna Doyle, who are our guests. Thanks for taking time to speak to us uh, today on your 2018 study uh, in metabolism. Uh, the study that uh, we'll be discussing today is McSweeney, Wardrop, Hyde, Lafontaine, Volek, and Doyle Keto Adaptation Enhances Exercise Performance and Body Composition Responses to Training in Endurance Athletes. Uh, the details of this publication will be posted to the USSF uh, website uh, for those interested listeners. So, Fionn, you're a PhD candidate, and Lauren, you're a lecturer in nutrition and sports nutrition, both in the Department of Sports and Exercise Science at Waterford Institute of Technology in Waterford, Ireland. Before we uh, chat, Lorna and uh, Fionn, can you give us uh, or give our audience a summary of how you got interested in this research area and a little bit on the scope of your research? Well, um, I guess I've been lecturing in sport and exercise nutrition for a number of years in Waterford IT. And a lot of students were coming to me with the questions about whether keto adaptation or a high fat diet can actually help performance of an athlete. And I actually just couldn't really answer the students. And so I just became interested in the area. I had a very good class that year. Uh, Fionn was one of the students in the class, and so I basically just asked any of them would they be interested in doing some research in the area to try and answer a question which I couldn't find the right answer to, and that was simply it. That's an interesting start. Uh, the, sometimes the grassroots uh, projects are the ones that become the most interesting. Yeah, definitely. We had no funding. We All we had was an idea. We still have no funding, but the idea and the findings are still there. That's terrific, and, and it looks like a lot of hard work in this study, uh, since it's a substantive-sized study. And Fionn, uh, how did you get interested? Was that uh, through the course, and uh, perhaps you've got some personal experience? Um, so I, I got interested during my undergrad, which was uh, kind of ex, uh, sports science, uh, and then in the third and fourth year, we had kind of a very much sports nutrition uh, focus. Um, and I myself come from a field sport called rugby. Um, not overly sure if your American listeners will be familiar with it. Oh yeah. Um, but I would have had a like high carbohydrate, high protein background with my own diet for my performance. Uh, so prior to data collection, I'd never really experimented with uh, any form of a low carbohydrate diet. Um, the reason I kind of put my hand up and applied for the study was. Um, I, I'd never really done any reading or research in the area, and it, it, it kind of dumped me as to how these athletes uh, would perform uh, without carbohydrates, um, and that's, that's kind of where my initial interest came from. Uh, it wasn't from a, a practitioner standpoint where I'd implemented it for a number of years. It was more out of kind of interest and not knowing. Terrific. That is an interesting start, and... Uh... You've uh, come to a very uh, topical area in the ultra sports science world uh, where indeed uh, there's a lot of controversy and 
um, discussion on low carbohydrate diets as, as you've illustrated so well in your study. Yeah, it's a, it's a highly discussed uh, topic, um, whether you're talking about body composition responses, uh, even there's some like strength training studies coming out recently, um, and obviously endurance is kind of our particular area. Um, very popular, but at the same time very uh, contentious uh, area of research. Mm-hmm. So thanks for those um, little bits on your background uh, to give our listeners uh, an idea of uh, the authors in the study. And I know there's a group of other authors uh, in the study that I'm sure have made uh, significant contributions uh, to the the outcomes as well. Did you want to talk a little bit about uh, your co-authors? Yeah, so it was, I'd say we were in our second year of data collection. To my knowledge at the time, there was nobody else in Ireland really researching uh, ketogenic diets. Um, So we we reached out to a number of uh, well-known authors, I suppose you call them, um, and through a couple of emails and kind of Skype consultation with Dr. Bolick, uh, we developed quite a good working relationship. Um, And then I spent six months at the Ohio State University in 2016. Uh, we'd ceased data collection prior to my uh, before I went over there, and um, so those co-authors uh, Parker, Richard, and Jeff uh, they, they really helped out with the putting together of the manuscript. Terrific! Yeah, it's, it's sometimes uh, the co-authors get overlooked, but uh, their uh, contributions uh, obviously uh, have helped you facilitate and and get this interesting study published. So, so before I go. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Lorna. Uh, no, there was one other author um, who was uh, Bruce Wardrop, and he's our technician here, and he actually helped us to design the study here as well in Ireland. Okay, okay. So, so uh, was it Paul and Lafontaine was uh, Vian? Uh, it was, yeah, so Parker, Richard, and oh, uh, Dr. Jeff were from Ohio. Okay, and then uh, uh, Mr. Wardrop was from, uh, is from Ireland. Yeah, correct, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so before I ask about the main findings of the studies, uh, perhaps, Gian, you're the person to do this, or Lorna, pipe in as, as you feel fit. Uh, could you summarize the background that led you to ask this question if keto-adapted athletes can maintain or improve performance on a low-carbohydrate, high-fat uh, ketogenic diet? Uh, yeah, so uh, we initially started this project in October 2014. Um, at the time, there was a lot of, uh, what do you call them, claims within lay literature that there's endurance athletes performing well, uh, and like in some, they claim to be, you know, performance going through the roof on a low carbohydrate diet. But if you were to actually look at the research, uh, particularly in ketogenic research, um, there was only two studies done uh, in the previous three decades. Uh, the first one was by uh, Steve Finney in 1983. Uh, that was done in male endurance athletes. Um, and then there was a 2014 study, I think it was, by Zajac. Um, but the Zajac study was more kind of low-carb, uh, high-fat, with moderate amounts of carbohydrate restriction. Uh, so when we were looking at ketogenic research, there was really only one study uh, done to date in uh, endurance athletes. Uh, that you could kind of test this hypothesis against. Um, so that's kind of where our research interest came from. We kind of 
looked at what people were claiming in lay literature and on social media and kind of replicated that in our study design and kind of put the diet to the test. Okay. And perhaps time filled a few gaps because obviously it was the literature review that Sion completed which led to the gaps in the research which we feel were there which allowed us to you know design this particular study the way we did. Absolutely. So, so yeah, again, uh, grassroots the whole way. It's, uh, it's interesting to see, and, and we, we're seeing the same anecdotal uh, accounts and um, claims of uh, individuals on these uh, ketogenic uh, diets. So uh, for the study then, could you summarize the main findings uh, for the dietary intervention and uh, the performance outcomes for these ultra sports athletes? That is for our listeners, the ultra sports athletes. Um, main findings were, uh, so we, we, we implemented a low carb ketogenic diet. Um, one of the limitations of the study throughout was that we weren't measuring uh, ketones throughout the 12 week dietary and training intervention. So it was a very welcome surprise to us, I suppose you could say, when we tested uh, serum levels of beta hydroxybutyrate, which is uh, one of the primary ketones. Um, that showed that the participants achieved a mean BHB reading of 0.5, which indicated a good dietary adherence throughout the 12-week protocol. Um, what we found was that uh, participants in the low-carb group experienced significant improvements in body composition uh, and maintenance of endurance performance. Uh, performance improvements did not significantly increase improve in each group, but the improvement was numerically greater in the low-carb guys at least. Um, and then something kind of what you wouldn't expect from uh, low-carbohydrate research is that we saw uh, improvements in critical power, critical peak power and average power uh, tests, which is kind of a measure of anaerobic performance. And that uh, improvement was definitely aided by weight loss in the ketogenic group. Um, because it was a relative test, so improvements in body composition meant that in week 12, the participants were uh, exercising against less resistance during the six-second sprints and critical power tests. The critical power test was placed directly after uh, 100k time trial. Okay, so that, that was a surprising outcome for you. Indeed, those power events, the six-second sprint and the, the critical power test, uh, wouldn't be something you'd expect to see, but uh, your training included, uh, I think, both endurance uh, strength or each of endurance strength and um, uh, high intensity. High intensity. Training. Yeah, interval training. Could you comment on yeah on that? Um, back as a ambitious young master student when I initially started out, uh, I wanted to encourage mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, to, in the hope of speeding up the low-carb guys' adaptation to the diet and hopefully improving performance. Uh, unfortunately, that was so, not something that we measured. Uh, it was just something that we kind of hoped for um, and implemented during the 12-week program. I guess, in a way, that's possibly a difference that some of the other researchers not have, that they haven't actually added on additional training to perhaps help the adaptation of the mitochondria. Now, it would have been lovely, obviously, to measure it, but uh, with no funding, we just did what we could 
based on evidence from the research which says that it will help mitochondrial adaptation to using fat as a source of energy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, I think there's, like, there, there's been a lot of literature come out in 2017 and 2018 in particular with ketogenic diets, but up until 2015-2016, a lot of the studies uh, were just focusing on acute uh, adaptations, so like 21 to 28 days. So I think when we were designing our study, one of our key things that we wanted to achieve was that the participants ad adapted to the diet. So that was one of the key components of putting a, not only a training program to hopefully uh, in increase or speed up their adaptation, but also to allow them sufficient time to adapt. Uh, so that's why the, where the 12-week protocol uh, was, was very important. I suppose it's also probably important to mention, and it wasn't really mentioned in the publication, but they were brought in in week six to see how they were getting on, you know, that there was constant contact with the participants pretty much all the time, but that wasn't something that we actually reported. So we have to make sure that that was happening so that they were actually, you know, complying with all of the trials protocol. Yeah, that's an interesting point and one uh, that I think is, is valuable for the listeners uh, that you did give them nutritional counseling and uh, 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 as well that you had that midpoint uh, check with them uh, to ensure that they were complying with the dietary intervention. Go ahead, Fionn. Yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a bit of a funny one. Like um, I was I was implementing a dietary protocol I never practiced myself. Um, when I initially started data collection, I was still playing competitive rugby, and so I was on a very much carbohydrate-based diet. And so I was getting. Uh, participants who are traditionally or probably all their lives uh, consuming a carbohydrate-based diet to go on a ketogenic diet um, and like th for the first seven to ten days two weeks even like they were they did not feel good their performance was non-existent um, and I was on the phone to some of them on like a daily basis and they were just saying you know is, is this ever going to end and um, it was a bit of a bizarre situation to be in to be kind of encouraging them to stick to the diet, making sure they're getting insufficient uh, electrolytes, making sure their diet's on point. And at, at the time, like we hadn't implemented a whole lot, so we were kind of just hoping for the best. Um, but typically after two, three weeks, people started to come around, their training started to improve, um, and they started to respond quite well over the course of the 12 weeks. Yeah, so indeed a, a difficult transition then for the for the individuals on the, on the ketogenic diet, the low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. De definitely not for the faint hearted uh, uh, if you're think thinking of uh, adapting, particularly if you're going to be uh, continuing your training throughout that period. So just to backtrack for a second there on the power uh, test that you did, the six second sprint and the critical power test, do you have an explanation for uh, what uh, or how this result came about in your in your ketogenic uh, group? Um, typically, the power uh, events respond to increases in muscle mass. Uh, the diet, the both groups had the similar training. So, is it diet related, or I think you mentioned you thought it might be related to efficiency? Could you expand expand on that, please? Um, I, 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 I've just finished writing a review, um, and in the review we've included uh, the key, all of the up-to-date ketogenic literature, and during it I obviously had to critically analyse uh, my own paper, um, and one of the points that I said was 
the so the, a critical power test for if your listeners aren't familiar, it's a three-minute all-out sprint against a set resistance based on body weight. Um, that was placed immediately after the 100k time trial. So participants were in a imaginably in, in each group were glycogen depleted. They were fatigued, um, and I've, I've kind of come to myself that uh, high intensity exercise performance in the ketogenic group was uh, not significantly affected in a highly fatigued state. Um, if if this critical power test was completed in a non-fatigued state, uh, I think the results would have been a lot different and most likely in favor of the high-carb guys. But because each participant uh, had already completed two and a half, three hours of competitive exercise, they were quite fatigued. So was it high-intensity exercise performance? Probably not, but it was fairly close to it uh, given how fatigued they were at that stage. Okay, so so it's in that fatigue state was where you're seeing the differences between the two groups. Yeah, from from a practical standpoint, um, if you were to bring in let's say ketogenic athletes and high carb carbohydrate athletes, and let's say do a 30 sec- second wind gate, it would show most likely that the high carb guys are superior in that style of exercise. But to an endurance athlete, um, when are you going to be that fresh to complete high intensity exercise performance. Yeah. Um, like most likely, uh, a lot of your like higher intensity bouts are done towards the end of a race. So that, that, that's why the high intensity was placed directly at the end of the race because that, that's how most races finish in a kind of sprint-like uh, fashion. Yeah, bunch sprint. Absolutely, very interesting. So just continuing on the exercise outcomes, so for the 100 uh, kilometer time trial, uh, prior to the study, if I've uh, read this correctly, the both groups uh, in the pre-intervention 100K time trial uh, pre-fueled, I think was the term that was used, uh, with carbohydrates. But this wasn't the case uh, for the 100K time trial post-intervention, uh, where I think yeah. the, L- uh, the low-carbohydrate uh, ketogenic diet group had just electrolytes and water, whereas the... Uh, uh, high carbohydrate group uh, pre-fueled for that 100k time trial. Could you comment on that? And is there something that yeah. we take away from that uh, with respect to your outcomes? Um, yes. Yeah, so at baseline, participants in each group uh, implemented their kind of habitual uh, race tactics. So typically, they were consuming high carbohydrate meals prior to and 30 to 60 grams an hour of carbohydrates during the 100k time trial. Um, then at post-intervention testing, the following uh, blood tests and DEXA in the morning, uh, guys in the high-carb group consume their high-carbohydrate breakfast, whereas uh, guys in the low-carb group consume their lo- kind of low-carbohydrate breakfast that they've come accustomed to. Then during the 100K time trial, participants in the high-carb group consume their 30 to 60 grams an hour, um, whereas people in the low-carb group consume just water and electrolytes. Um, the reason we went with this is uh, I've I, I kind of been fascinated, myself and Lorna and Bruce have been fascinated by uh, kind of these claims that uh, if you adapt to a low carbohydrate diet, uh, you know, you've access to a much larger fuel tank, you don't need exogenous sources of fuel. So with this study design, we were kind of just putting that uh, hypothesis or kind of lay claim, I suppose you could call it, to the test 
Um, what we found was that participants could maintain, if not slightly improve, their performance over 100k following a 12-week adaptation period. Um, but having been in the lab with all those guys at post-intervention testing, uh, had that race gone on for 120 or 140 kilometers, uh, I don't think we would have had uh, nine guys completing the study. Uh, they were they were on the edge of of uh, their capabilities at 100k, followed by the power test. I suppose as well, just to add in that one of the reasons why I didn't feel myself, I suppose that it would be a good idea to supplement carb guys that had got a kind of used to a ketogenic diet, supplement them with the carbs beforehand is because, you know, in so many papers you see that taking carbs beforehand will affect your ability to actually oxidize fat. And we were trying to actually maximize the oxidation of fat during the exercise. So Burke's studies, it was just something to be a little bit different from the previous ones. So again, as you said, said, we were actually seeing how they relied solely without exogenous carbohydrate solutions or anything. And I think one of the Another interesting result from the study was that uh, two low-carb ketogenic guys came in for post-intervention testing, and I think they only got to like kilometer 60 or 70, and they just could not go anymore. Uh, and it was later found that they their BHB levels were like 0.1 or 0.2, which kind of uh, would say to a low-carbohydrate athlete that if your ketone levels are not elevated, and you don't supplement carbohydrates during exercise, there is a high possibility that you will bonk and be unable to complete the race or training. Um, so I think that was a kind of a, an interesting result, and it highlights the importance Possibly. of having elevated ketones yeah. if you not to supplement carbohydrates. Absolutely. And perhaps uh, there was some non-compliance on their part if their beta-hydroxybutyrate was only at... Uh... 0.1 or 0.2, which I think was closer to what you saw in, in your high-carbohydrate group. Yes, um, but at, at the same time, um, elevating someone's ketones uh, is easier said than done, uh, especially when you're not monitoring them on a daily basis. Absolutely. Uh, if you're not restricting carbohydrates or if you're not eating moderate amounts of protein, um, your BHB is just not going to get elevated. Terrific. Well, uh, I'm going to shift the focus just a little bit. Uh, on the body composition changes, uh, you saw greater uh, loss in body mass and percentage fat, which I think you indicated in the main outcomes of the study. Um, I think the high-carbohydrate group lost 0.8 kilograms and uh, the low-carbohydrate ketogenic group about 5.9 kilograms. And percentage fat changes were 0.7% and for high-carbohydrate and uh, ketogenic was 5.2% uh, loss. So did you have any estimates of energy expenditure in the two groups? And could you speak to the energy balance in the two groups to come up with an explanation for this uh, finding for the changes in body composition? Yeah. Um, so like, uh, we highlighted this in text, but uh, there were some baseline uh, differences in body composition. So low-carb guys had a higher percentage body fat at baseline. So they would have had... I suppose more fat to lose throughout the 12-week period. Um, this, this did occur due to non-randomization, um, which we can get into if, if, if you wish. Um, but to discuss the changes in body composition, uh, one, in, one other important thing to highlight is that 
it, like it, it wasn't our intention, but dietary protein in grams per kg was not specifically matched. Um, and there, there is a recent publication by uh, Alan Argon in the ISSN extended position stand, uh, and they highlight uh, protein as a very important macronutrient for uh, having positive Im implications on body composition. Um, there is some new emerging research on uh, ketones that they have like a beneficial effect on satiety, um, but I don't know to put the improvements solely on that uh, would, would be a stretch. Uh, I think at this time as the research is um, just emerging. Absolutely. Uh, and just to get on your point about uh, calories, so like a, a fairly uh, significant thing was calories increased, increased in each group, but uh, weight loss occurred in each group. Um, we are putting the significant weight loss in the low-carb guys down to uh, in increased tr uh, energy expenditure, so tr like training through strength training, high-intensity interval training, that wasn't something that they were done, doing prior to that. Um, and there, there was also a number of confounding variables that we weren't uh, monitoring, such as non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, and also, uh, one of the major limitations of the study is we only presented uh, food diaries in week one and week 12. So if it was a weight loss study, which it wasn't at the outset, um, that would be a pretty poor return to kind of monitor uh, participants' dietary habits over a 12-week period. So uh, we're putting that down to increased training volume and improved dietary adherence throughout the 12-week period. Um, I think one of, for, for some people, um, like psychologically, uh, ketogenic diets, they're so restrictive in that you know exactly what you can and cannot eat. Um, generally, you increase your protein consumption and you, you can't snack on lots of sugary, starchy foods. So your chances of overeating in those 12-week periods um, is significantly reduced. Um, so in, in, in certain segments of the population, uh, a highly restrictive diet can, can be a good thing in terms of body composition. But obviously, not everyone uh, will be suited to that kind of diet or lifestyle. So the, the energy intake in your low-carbohydrate group was about 400 kilocalories a day greater. I think it's 2640 or thereabouts in the high carbohydrate group and a little over 3000 uh in your um low carb or sorry low carbohydrate ketogenic group so despite the meeting mm. bringing in a little bit more kilocalories each day uh they still lost more weight and so you've and you've accounted uh, that to the greater energy expenditure uh you're you're you're, in, uh, you're feeling that it's the greater energy expenditure of the group uh, during the training and the other non-reported uh, uh, components of the energy expenditure. Yes, but as Sion said, we didn't record the diet through week two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Perhaps they reduced their energy expenditure through those particular times. It's hard to exactly say what was going on when we didn't record it. Although we did have diaries, but we didn't actually, you know, go into the specific amounts of energy that they consumed over time. Yeah. Um, also, I think it, it's been uh, previously shown numerous times that uh, in clinical populations as well as uh, athletic populations that 
underreporting and overreporting of nutrients occurs, um, yeah. and that's one of the difficulties with non-feeding studies that you can't really control every uh, gram of whether it's fat or carbohydrate that's going into someone, um, and because fat is so energy dense, energy dense is the word I was looking for. Um, like if you put down uh, 10 grams of butter on your uh, food dairy, but there was only three grams, that and you're that kind of loose with your reporting of diaries, that that's going to add up over the course of the day. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, some interesting points uh, with respect to self-reporting, and uh, but still impressive results, uh, no less. And I think this is all pointing towards future studies, uh, uh, which I'm going to ask about in a few minutes. Uh, so if I could. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about ketosis. We know that the two uh, main keto acids are beta-hydroxybutyric acid and acetoacetic acid. Both of those are strong acids and uh, at the physiological pH they dissociate and we get excess hydronines that bind to bicarb and uh, the, uh, their anions um, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate are filtered and excreted by the kidneys. Uh, there's been some concern that uh, dehydration is a risk for athletes, especially ultra sports athletes on a low carbohydrate ketogenic diets. Is that something that needs to be considered hydration status? And did you have any hydration measures uh, for your athletes uh, on the low carbohydrate ketogenic diet? Um, actually, in terms of the ketogenic diet, hydration status is probably one of the things that I, is very, very important. And I guess in terms of health of a ketogenic endurance athlete, that would be one thing that personally I would actually worry about. Um, we obviously advise our participants to consume electrolytes to make sure that they were taking in enough sodium. And sodium obviously stimulates the, test, uh, the um, thirst sensors and causes you to consume more. Now, the problem would have been if they were obviously having just water. That's where I'd be very, very worried. I'd be worried because obviously their ability to absorb sodium won't be as great on a ketogenic diet because of the lack of glucose. So obviously their ability to excrete sodium would be greater. And whether it causes dehydration as such, I don't know, but I certainly would be worried in terms of you know preventing the risk of hyponatremia and making sure that the electrolytes were actually properly balanced in your blood throughout exercise. So it would definitely always be advised to be extremely careful and make sure that electrolytes were consumed with the fluid to stimulate thirst. Yeah, so the, but the kidneys are filtering uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. And I believe that's the concern with uh, hydration status is a lot of fluids are passed, being passed and urine produced as uh, the body uh, fights to maintain the pH of the blood. Yeah. Okay, so uh, moving on to the 100K time trial and the fat oxidation results, uh, you reported a, uh, you were using a non-protein uh, respiratory exchange ratio, and uh, you reported lower RER in the low-carbohydrate-ketogenic uh, diet group uh, relative to the three other groups, which would have been that group, pre-intervention and uh, both uh, 100k time trials for the high carbohydrate group. We're using a respiratory exchange ratio. The assumption is we're oxidizing carbohydrates and lipids. 
But in the case of our ketogenic group, we know that they're oxidizing some fraction of uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Uh, and the, the rest for exchange ratio for beta-hydroxybutyrate is about 0.89. Did you consider that in the outcomes and how might that uh, influence the conclusions with respect to fat oxidation? Um, it was something that we had considered, um, but not something that we had the ability to analyze. Um, so uh, we'd, we'd really be speculating on that front. Um, but what, what, what we did see across the board was low-carb guys um, were burning fat, more fat throughout the 100k time trial. Mm -hmm. And they only really got into uh, what would appear to be, uh, from the REO results, glucose metabolism uh, in the final stages of the 100k time trial, when presumably they were really ramping up their intensity to get the best time they could. And during the critical power test, um so what was the precise ratio of oxidization um i'm not i'm unsure sure i mean i i just think it's perhaps uh, something that's overlooked in the studies where ketogenesis is being uh, a set or we're working with ketogenic athletes or ones on a ketogenic diet is that uh the respiratory exchange for beta hydroxybutyrate is is higher than that of fat so uh, it'd be interesting to partition uh, the oxidation of beta-hydroxybutyrate and that of uh, the lipids and think about how that might influence the relative oxidation rates of carbohydrates and lipids. Yeah, that's actually a very, very interesting point because, and it is interesting as well because I suppose it's not something I would have thought about previously and I would have been expected the RER to be lower, but certainly, um, as you point out, if beta-hydroxybutyrate has a higher oxidation rate, it's certainly true that it was obviously happening to our participants at some level because they had a higher oxidation rate. Yeah, so, and if the RER of beta-hydroxybutyrate is 0.89, I think it's pulling your lipid oxidation rates to a lower level. That is to say the RER is increased, relatively speaking, uh, such as yes. you might even see greater lipid oxidation rates if you're able to partition uh, the lipids from the uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate oxidation rates. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So now, with respect to ketogenesis, we know that diabetics um, are uh, in, can be in ketosis, and some epilepsy patients are given ketogenic diets. And complications that we see with those diets include constipation, or the transit time is is increased. The blood lipid profiles uh, can change with elevated uh, blood triglycerides low-density lipoproteins, cholesterol concentrations uh, can increase. And presumably over the long term, with less fiber in the diets, there's higher risk for colorectal cancers. So should ultra-endurance athletes be concerned about these health risks if they adopt a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet? Well, I imagine for an athlete, if they are not achieving the levels of fiber intake that they need to achieve it would be the same for anybody but possibly at the same time as they have maybe some possible risks on health they might have some increased benefits on health which might be their possible reduced risk of things like diabetes obviously but it's not that it's not possible to increase your fiber intake on a low ketogenic diet it is possible but it's hard work 
and whether a person has the knowledge or the ability to actually do that sufficiently, well, that would be a worry, and that's why it has, you have to be very, very careful in implementing that diet. An interesting aspect, which I suppose is something that I want to, uh, we want to look at within Fionn study, is actually the levels of fibre that the athletes were consuming and the levels of all the different nutrients that are being consumed. Because I do think it will affect the absorption of nutrients, the, possibly the general health of the person. So all of those considerations are extremely important in terms of health. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a paper published just last week in the British Medical Journal by Catherine Zinn from New Zealand. Uh, and it was a hy- hypothetical case study, uh, I think you call it. Um, and it was of a male and a general population, not ultra-endurance at least, but it was general population, male and female. And they, they basically designed a ketogenic diet that met all of the required nutrient intakes. I think it was high, low carbohydrate, high fat. LCHF. Yeah. So, so it sorry, wouldn't yeah. quite be ketogenic. Yeah, I think the carb restriction on that study was 80 grams. Um, so low, low carb, but uh, a bit away from the 50 gram threshold uh, that's commonly seen in uh, for ketogenic dieting. But she did obviously, if you examine that study, which is extremely new, obviously, um, it was capable of, or the person who was achieving and taking in these types of food was capable of actually, I suppose, taking in sufficient fiber, taking in all of the vitamins and minerals that they need to take in. Yeah. But Karen is obviously a dietitian, and she knows how to design diets. Athletes themselves may not have this knowledge, so therefore it's very important that they would link up with somebody uh, who has the appropriate knowledge and that they wouldn't go out trying things themselves when they could end up in health problems. So it's not that it's not possible, but it's certainly something which needs to be, um, you know, the person needs to be instructed properly to do it. Yeah, and speaking from our own study, um, I think it only happened on two occasions. Uh, during the, like, the first one to two weeks, uh, two participants contacted me and said, uh, I, I'm constipated, haven't gone to the toilet in a few days. And obviously you'd be immediately concerned and you'd be like, oh my God, uh, send me on a food diary of what you've been eating for the past couple of days. And because these guys were coming from a high carb background straight into a ketogenic diet, despite me giving them, it was like a 20 page uh, personally written handout on how to formulate a ketogenic diet, some guys were just eating bacon and cheese, you know, like they, they weren't getting on, in any fibrous vegetables, uh, no nuts or seeds. So it, like education is a very important aspect um, if, if someone is going to uh, go for a, a low carb or even a ketogenic approach um, because it, it is uh, very new to everyone who hasn't tried it really. Absolutely. And I think you've highlighted the need for nutritionists uh, to be engaged for uh, individuals interested in ketogenic diets uh, so as to maintain uh, uh, health. Uh, and, and a lot of the uh, B vitamins, which we know are important in energy transfer, are in the, the fibers and the, uh, the uh, nut or the grains and breads. And taking those out of the diet can, could put them at risk for deficiencies in the B vitamins. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that was always something I was really interested in myself, especially vitamin B1. 
and uh, it is something obviously that I'd like to investigate a little bit further. Um, I suppose well, another aspect which was very interesting in our athletes, um, we presented this as a paper, or sorry, as a poster um, at the Nutrition Society meeting in Ireland, and it was that they, our athletes, um, the ketogenic athletes, appear to be taking in slightly less iron as well. And we did actually uh, blood hematology, and we, we analyzed their blood samples before and after the diet, and we found that um, levels of iron had actually decreased in their blood. So that's not something which has been found before. We have looked at the diet and we found that, you know, uh, perhaps the diet was a bit lower in iron as well. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that have to be considered um, which could affect the iron and oxygen transfer and energy ability, which also could affect the performance of athletes. Absolutely. Uh, perhaps their vitamin C levels uh, oh, could have been reduced uh, and impairing the absorption of iron. That is correct, yeah. Uh, well, terrific. So on that topic of uh, carbohydrates and um, the lactate measures that you report, uh, could you comment on that uh, and how that potentially relates to the glycogen use in the two groups? And I think you measured lactate throughout the 100K time trials? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, lactate was measured at 20 kilometer intervals throughout the 100k time trials um, and from from memory I haven't got it in front of me but the lactate responses were uh, similar throughout the 100k time trial and following the uh, critical power tests uh, indicating that there was no detriment to glucose metabolism most likely uh, from uh, glyconeogenesis um, because participants had been uh, in a low-carb diet for the previous uh, three months, 12 weeks. Indeed. So, so the, you do see reported uh, concerns that uh, athletes on a low-carbohydrate uh, ketogenic diet may impair their ability to, to utilize uh, carbohydrates. And I think uh, Asker Jukendrup has, has commented that uh, when, you, you, when you consume less carbohydrates, uh, the body adapts as well, reducing your ability to oxidize carbohydrates uh, or glucose specifically. And, and I think your results speak against that and your groups show the same lactate concentrations during the 100K time trials. Uh, to, to my knowledge, there's not extensive research out there on low-carb low athletes' ability to oxidize carbohydrates. But uh, I believe the study was done by Stellingworth. Um, they found that when carbohydrates were reintroduced on following a like acute low carb high fat diet, uh, although carbohydrates were available, the low carb athletes um, were appeared to be in, uh, unable to use them in an efficient manner. Um, there's a recent study done by Webster, I think it was published last year. Um, it, it only had one participant, but that one participant had been following a low carb high fat diet for a number of years. Uh, and I believe uh, being hi highly su successful with it. Um, the study looked at uh, performance tests uh, ranging from like four minutes to 30 minutes, and then uh, it was high intensity performance and then endurance performance. And they found that carbohydrate supplementation on a low carb, high fat diet uh, 
um, benef benefited performance ranging from four to 30 minutes, but didn't significantly impact on endurance. Um, so uh, lots, lots of uh, research to be done in that area um, because uh, low carb dieting with carbohydrate supplementation um, or metabolic flexibility, um, as it's referred to, um, is a growing trend. But again, uh, the, the research, specific research in that area is lacking. Absolutely. Interesting points, Fionn. Uh, so in your study design, uh, clearly blinding of the, of the volunteers wasn't something that was uh, achievable. Uh, could you comment on perhaps any uh, concerns that you might have with respect to the lack of blinding between your groups and how that might have influenced the outcomes? Uh, yeah, look, it was, I, I don't think we could, could have blinded the study. Um, there's, there's a number of non-randomized studies uh, out there at the moment, uh, particularly in ketogenic research. And um, that's, there's, there's a lot of criticism out there uh, for that. Um, but what, when we were designing the study, um, like realistically, you you can get you can get anyone to consume any diet for two three days, but you're not going to get a, a grown adult to consume a diet that he may not like for three months. Um, if if we had a, done a randomised study, uh, our participant numbers would have been likely a lot lower. Um, it obviously, it would have been preferable to have a randomised blinded study, but unfortunately, uh, I, th I think that was unattainable uh, in this circumstance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that, that it is uh, something that would be very difficult to obtain, but that's something that, that needs to be perhaps considered uh, with the outcomes is that if there's any perhaps hype or uh, belief amongst either of the subject groups, um, there's a psychological uh, component to performance, and and that might uh, might need to be considered for your outcomes. Yeah, I've I've heard that criticism myself, but it kind of balances itself out because we didn't force anyone to consume a high carb diet, and similarly, we didn't force anyone to consume a low carb diet. They opted for that diet because they believed it was the best fit for them. So, you know, like. I, it's, it's kind of a null, null argument uh, in that sense. Yeah, and I think that you, uh, uh, in your methodology, you indicated that the subject self-selected the diets. Could you comment? Correct, yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was purely to improve dietary adherence over the three-month period. Um, if we had implemented a, a three-day study or a seven-day study, we would have most likely opted for a randomized uh, diet. But again, uh, if, if you have a high-carbohydrate athlete who's performing well on a high-carbohydrate diet and he does not believe a ketogenic diet is going to optimize his performance, will he stick to a ketogenic diet for three months? Absolutely not. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, was, it, it, it wasn't possible, uh, we, we felt at least. Yeah, no, but that's an interesting approach. Um, There'll be criticisms on both sides, but uh, at the end of the day, you've done an amazing study and had these athletes uh, adhere to a low carbohydrate diet for for 12 weeks, which is uh, bringing a lot of important uh, and uh, novel results uh, to the readers and listeners here on on this podcast uh, with Ultra Sports Science Foundation. Uh, so, just looking to close up our podcast here. Uh, Fionn and, and Lorna, 
Uh, what do you feel are the next directions that need to be taken for keto adaption diets and uh, the study of these diets and how that relates to performance in endurance athletes? Um, I, I think uh, people's uh, at least claims out there are kind of turning away from the no need for exogenous fuel ideology um, and people on a low carbohydrate diet have identified that carbohydrate supplementation is necessary during exercise. Um, so what what like what I, what I've seen people do is implement a low carb high fat diet, not necessarily ketogenic, um, to increase fat metabolism during training, uh, get some positive uh, body composition responses, but that during exercise they identify that they need carbohydrates to maintain their top level of performance. Um, I think an interesting area of research would be to look at that um, and not to do a kind of crash low carb high fat diet. Let someone go through a eight to twelve week training protocol on a low carb high fat diet or low carb ketogenic diet, and then test that versus uh, a low carb or a high carb diet um, training protocol. Um, but I, I think one of the key limitations in the literature at the moment is that Louise Burke's study is the only study that I could see that is done in uh, highly elite athletes. Um, other studies, including our own, is kind of like more uh, endurance trained and endurance athletes. Um, so it's very difficult to uh, compare compare the two uh, in in a, in a in an accurate and fair manner. I think that's true, and I think probably that's even endorsed by the ACSM and the webinar that they had a few days, that they say that still carbohydrates remain the evidence of the choice for elite in athletes, and indeed we're including endurance athletes within that as well, because there simply isn't enough studies out there, or they haven't been done in the correct way uh, to actually endorse the usage of a ketogenic diet within um, you know, elite athletes, uh, and that is certainly a gap. And I would probably add in that the lack of randomization as well, it would be very interesting to do, but an extremely difficult project and one which would need a lot of funding behind it. And it can obviously be very difficult to get funding in these scenarios as well. I suppose coming on from our own research here, and I'm, I'm very into the science aspects of things and what I would like to see further, I guess I would like to investigate further some of the aspects that we found maybe were affected in this trial, such as maybe lower levels of iron status. Is that something that athletes should be worried about on a ketogenic diet? You know, um, I don't know. Um, but again, a, a more controlled dietary study would need to be examined in order to see. Um, I'm not sure I could find enough research out there to show, you know, how absorption of iron, how people taking extra coffee, reduced vitamin C, actually affects the absorption of iron and whether that would influence oxygen transport and therefore performance of athletes. So I think that's quite an interesting area. And I do think the recent research from Catherine Zinn and a hypothetical scenario of diets which are healthy for athletes, um, I think that's an area which probably needs to have more attention to make sure that if athletes are achieving those types of diets or, you know, trying them out, that they are kept as healthy as possible. Absolutely. So just to follow up on those comments, uh, if I could for a sec, um, 
Fian, the, the study you mentioned by uh, Louise Burke, is that on the highly uh, uh, trained elite uh, walkers? Race walkers, correct, yeah. Race walkers. And uh, just for the listenership, uh, that was a study published uh, recently or? Uh, that was published in January 2017. Okay. Um, it was done in uh, Olymp- Australian Olympic athletes um, during a 21-day intensive training camp. Um, so there was three groups. There was a periodized carbohydrate group and a high carbohydrate group or like a, a high carbohydrate availability group. So, and that was versus a ketogenic diet. And what they found was a 21-day intensive training camp benefited the uh, race walkers in the high-carb group um, and kind of negated uh, training adaptations uh, in low-carbohydrate athletes. Uh, one of my criticisms of that study, and it's a brilliant study, um, is that the diet, dietary intervention was quite short, so just 21 days. Um, from from my own experience in uh, not elite athletes but uh, in, endurance athletes was that the first seven ten, seven to ten days of keto adaptation, um, your, your training isn't going to be worth much to you, and you're going to be struggling to get through each session. Yeah. Um, and also the study protocol, um, I think exercise was less than 55, 60 minutes, so uh, no uh, stress. Uh, unsure of the year but it was a study saying if you're going to be looking at a low carbohydrate diet uh, you need to look at it in a sense where glycogen depletion is a possibility Um, looking at at it in a position where oxidative metabolism is a priority um, you're most likely just going to find that uh, performance is going to be negated or uh, decreased Um, and that's that's what uh, Louise Burke and her colleagues uh, found in that instance Terrific. And uh, for the uh, ACSM webinar that you you mentioned, uh, c- could you comment on that just briefly? Oh, I, I just, I was only looking at tweets, to be honest with you, that were from the webinar and what they were endorsing, and they were just referencing to Helg's study in 2017 as being carbohydrates being the, you know, choice. Yeah. Uh, remains over a ketogenic diet, and that was all really said. Terrific. Well, I think your study has uh, broken some new ground for the field of uh, ketogenic diets and elite athletes, uh, as well as uh, endurance athletes, ultra sport athletes. And you've opened a lot of new uh, questions or posed a lot of new questions uh, for individuals to continue and follow up on your, your research. So uh, just to close up, today we've uh, spoken with Mr. Fionn uh, McSweeney and Lorna Doyle uh, from the Department of Sports and Exercise Science at Waterford Institute of Technology, Waterford, Ireland, on their study published uh, or to be published in Metabolism, uh, McSweeney et al., Keto Adaptation Enhances Exercise Performance and Body Composition Responses to Training in Endurance Athletes. So you can look to the USSF website uh, for the details uh, of that citation. Thanks for listening to the Ultra Sports Science Foundation podcast. Please explore our website, ultrasportscience.us, for additional educational opportunities, including our annual International Congress, medical training videos, and case reports. 
We welcome your feedback at the email provided on the Foundation website. And if you like what we're doing, please consider a donation to our nonprofit foundation. Until next time, stay healthy.